Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. And our discussion today is going to center on how real estate securities laws impact qualified opportunity funds. Joining me to discuss this topic today is Connie Rathbone. Connie is a real estate and securities attorney at Dunn Carney, and she joins us from Eagle, Idaho. Connie, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much. And thanks for inviting me to, uh, to your podcast. Yeah, we, uh, we met very recently, just a couple weeks ago at the Novogratic conference in Long Beach, California. So great to uh, network with you, Connie, and, and bring you on the show. You've got a really sharp mind and uh, you, you know opportunity zones and securities laws inside and out. So really keen to get your uh, take on those topics today. So to start us off, Connie, big picture question here. How do real estate securities laws impact qualified opportunity funds? Great. And thanks again for the opportunity. I've been practicing law for about 35 years and I've been doing real estate and securities work. Basically, what that means is finding private financing for real estate projects. And what I have learned over the years is that real estate developers will often put together a limited liability company and have some of their friends put their money into the limited liability company and sit back and wait for their developer friend to make them money. And there's always a misconception with issuers, and that's what the real estate developer becomes in that context, Uh, Because they think if I only have one or two investors, or if it's just friends and family, then there's nothing I need to do. And that is completely wrong. And it was wrong before Opportunity Zones, and it's wrong in Opportunity Zones. I like people to understand that the Opportunity Zone law is an overlay of existing law. So limited liability companies that were formed prior to the Opportunity Zone law were, are the same kind of limited liability companies that are, that are formed now. And similarly, the securities laws that applied to those limited liability company sales is the same securities laws that apply for Opportunity Zones. And so we start with the definition of a security. And in this context, It is called the Howey test, and I won't go into the boredom of how that came about, but it is a test that has four prongs. It's an investment of money into a common enterprise with the expectations of profits. And here's the kicker. Those profits are based solely or primarily on the efforts of others. So if I form a limited liability company to do a real estate development of some kind, and Jimmy says, here, Connie, is a million dollars, and I want you to make money for me. That is a security because Jimmy is going to make money based on 
my efforts. He's going to make his profits based on my efforts. So the thing to remember to take away from this podcast is if you have any entity where someone in the entity is making money, is making profits based on someone else's efforts, then it is a security and you need to address the securities compliance issues. It's not something to be afraid of unless you ignore it and then it will come back to bite you. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense there. Don't need to be afraid of it unless you ignore it. I like that. Uh, yeah. So what about uh, with respect to opportunity zone investing, qualified opportunity fund issuers specifically, what are some different options that they have uh, if they want to be cognizant of securities laws, if they want to issue their fund, if they want to get limited partners into their LLCs or other types of entities properly? Great. Okay. So in the Opportunity Zone program, the vehicle for doing the project is a qualified opportunity fund. I'm a little disappointed that they use the word fund because when you say fund, people assume big. And that's not true. An opportunity fund can be most any kind of entity. Typically, they are limited liability companies because that's the appropriate entity to hold real property in. And so a fund can be a limited liability company with Jimmy and me, or it can be something that has hundreds of investors and different rules apply based on who that is. If Jimmy and I are in a limited liability fund and it is a member managed fund. And so Jimmy and I are each pulling the oar on making the money, then it is not a security. Mm-hmm. And if, Jimmy is sitting back waiting for me to make the money. It is a security. And so you need to evaluate that. If there are five people pulling the oar and five people sitting back, then it is a security. So if we have gone through that threshold to decide whether it is a security, then you have to talk about compliance. And that means you either have to register it as a public offering almost very few opportunity funds do that. It's overwhelming and very expensive. You can do a regulation A offering, which is a mini public offering, or most opportunity funds go the process of complying with what's called regulation D, which is private offerings. And so if you do a Regulation D offering, you have to file a Form D with the federal government, and you need to check the states in which your investors are coming from because there may be a notice requirement of the Form D in your particular state. Now, there's a further breakdown of Regulation D um, in terms of doing 505 or 506 offerings. Most people use Regulation 506 because you can raise the the greatest amount of money there. And Regulation 506 is further broken down into 506B or 506C. And so in a 506B offering, which was the only availability until Obama passed his 
Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, and in that offering, you can only sell to people with whom you have a pre-existing business relationship. There could be no advertising or general solicitation. That means you can't even put it on your website, right? Because putting it on the website makes it available to the public. In, in Obama's Jobs Act, they created 506C, where it allows for advertising and general solicitation, but put some additional restrictions. So if you want to think about 506B, then you can sell to 35 non-accredited investors and unlimited accredited investors, but once again, no advertising or general solicitation. An accredited investor is someone who has certain financial characteristics and the accredited investor rule was recently broadened so that it could apply to additional people. And the basics of it are that the investor has to have made $200,000 in the last, for the last two years. In each of the last two years, right? In each of the last yeah. two years, that's correct. Or 300 with their spouse. Mm -hmm with the expectation that that is going to continue or have a million dollar net worth excluding their personal residence. And so those are the two elements that people use most. Mm -hmm. There are different elements with respect to entities and trusts and some of the new um, elements that made it a little broader are that principles of a company will be accredited investors, even if they don't have the financial criteria, lawyers and CPAs and investment advisors, certain of them are accredited investors without the financial criteria. Indian tribes are accredited investors. So there was a basket of additional um, categories that can be considered accredited investors. And those were just added about, I think less than two years ago, is that right? Fairly recently. Yes, yes, those were added last year. Last so, year, okay. And so with the 506B, you can have non-accredited investors, a few, and then you can have uh, accredited investors. Now, as a legal practitioner, my advice to fund managers and real estate developers is to not take non-accredited investors into your mm -hmm. offering because those are people that are deemed to have less sophisticated business knowledge, development knowledge, et cetera. And so the standards of disclosure that you have to meet if you allow non-accredited investors is substantially more than if it is an accredited only offering. And in fact, no written disclosure is required if you are selling only to accredited investors. Now, here's where legal versus practical meets because I always recommend to my clients that they have some level of written disclosure so that if the deal goes bad, it's not a he said, she said about what the issuer told the investor about the product and its risks. So that kind of summarizes the uh, 506B. If you go to 506C, 
that allows for advertising and general solicitation. So that means you can have a, an open house type event to talk about the offering. You can put an ad in the Wall Street Journal or your local newspaper. You can post it on your website. Of course, there are restrictions on what you can do in your advertising, but allows you to advertise and generally solicit, which makes it easier to raise the money. And in that 506C, no non-accredited investors are allowed. And the, the biggest deal is that, besides the advertising and general solicitation, is that accredited investors have to have a certification that they are accredited from a third party. And that third party can be a third party certification company. Many of those popped up after 506C was proposed. It can be the investor's CPA, investment advisor, lawyer, but there's an additional step to certifying the accreditation rather than the 506B self-accreditation. So I've talked a lot about you know, rules and regulations and those sorts of things. Once I have a developer or an issuer or a client that does many securities offerings, I don't let, and if they have ever done one 506C, I don't let them go back to 506B because there's too much risk that this issuer met an investor in an advertisement which would invalidate the qualification of 506B. It's really hard to go from C to B. I guess you could go from B to C as long as you don't have any non-accredited's in in your in your issue in your in your fund, excuse me, in your security. Um, well that was great, Connie. That was essentially I think like a 7 or 8 minute <laughs> masterclass in yeah. securities laws and how they impact qualified opportunity funds uh, specifically. So uh, let me let me see if I can recap very quickly and and okay. correct me if I trip up anywhere. So there's there there, there are a few other types of regs that we didn't cover um, that are used m in much more limited fashion or that you don't deal with too much. But essentially, you've got I think it was three options for issuing a qualified opportunity fund. Typically, you can do a, a, a registered public offering. Almost nobody does that. You can do a Reg A mini offering. Almost nobody does that. But the vast majority of these qualified opportunity funds, if they're done properly, if they do file paperwork with the SEC to begin with, and they should, if they are a security, if they rise to that level, file under regulation D. Then under there, you've got a few different options. There's 505 or 506, rule 505 or 506. Almost nobody uses rule 505. Almost everybody uses rule 506. And that's that's been my uh, take uh, generally from all of the fund managers that I speak with. Uh, regularly is they're almost always, almost exclusively, they are either 506B or 506C. And by the way, if just, 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 just a plug for my business. I like the 506Cs because <laughs> we derive a lot of our revenue yes. from our advertising and our, and our OZ pitch day that we put on a few times a year that allow fund managers to come and actually present their offerings to our audience. Um, and then, yeah, there's a good point you made about, uh, either having to verify or certify the accreditation status yourself or through a third party. 
Um, typically, if you do sign on to a 506C fund, if you subscribe to a 506C offering, you kind of just generally do that as part of all of the other paperwork that you fill out when you invest in the fund, when you sign your subscription docs and wire the money. It's a pretty simple step to get that letter from your CPA or attorney or like yes. Connie mentioned, there's a handful of third-party services that, that have popped right. up and do it as well. Yeah. And to further, Did I get that right? Yes, you got it exactly right. And to Good. further clarify that, clearly anyone participating, any issuer participating in your pitch day mm -hmm. has to either be with a public offering, a Regulation A offering, or a 506C because you guys right. are definitely advertising and generally soliciting. I'm working on an offering right now that is a 506B and they wanted their employees to have the opportunity to invest. All of the employees are greatly involved in the project. And so we created a manager managed LLC in which every employee has substantial duties and is a manager. Hmm. And so even though some of those people don't meet the dollar test, they do meet the principles of the business test. So we are able to count them as an accredited because of one of those new elements, one of those new categories of accredited investors, which is principles of the business. And so every fact pattern is unique and specific. And I just encourage anyone that is putting together limited liability companies for real estate developments or other entities to do to be business opportunity funds to seek appropriate CPA and legal counsel on the fund issues and certainly to take a look at the securities issues to see if you need to comply and if you do need what what level of compliance is necessary yeah very good uh good good advice there so uh what what are your thoughts generally connie on 506c versus 506b what, what do you like to advise funds to do typically do, do you advise them one way or the other or is it a facts and circumstances test that, that it kind of depends or what, when do you like to tell somebody you should be a C versus when you should be a B? If the issuer has not already identified the investors and knows that they have a pre-existing business relationship with them, then I always go towards the C. And the reason for that is because you can inadvertently step over the line with respect to the personal relationship issue. Um, for years and years, I did securities offerings and my clients would say, Connie, you have to find a way for me to, uh, for me to advertise. And my response would be, you have to go to a regulation A. But that regulation previously had a $5 million capital raise limit. And so, and it was also expensive to put together. So the $5 million cap made it kind of inconsistent with the extra work to put one of those together. Now that they've raised that to 50 million, the Regulation A is more attractive. Um, but Regulation A in a public offering, of course, can be advertised. So there, my creation of 506B offerings has substantially 
been reduced in the last couple of years because people often do not know exactly who they're going to raise money from. And in the opportunity zone context, remember that the opportunity zone benefits only work if people are investing capital gains. And so the issuers or the people creating the fund may have their own set of capital gains, but they may have to search further than before for people that have capital gains that want to invest. Now, that's not to say that you can't put non-gain money in. In fact, I'm working on an offering right now where we have, we're creating a opportunity zone business property entity, a QOZB, we call it. And we have a couple of different investors who created their own opportunity funds, husband and wife, prior to the end of 2021 so that they could take advantage of that second step up in basis. They funded their opportunity funds. So I have two or three husband and wife qualified opportunity funds that are going to invest in my QOZB, my, the business that's going to own the real property that's being developed. They also have other friends that have just regular non-qualified money. Either they won the lottery or they have basis or they have savings that is not capital gains. And so I am creating an entity that has three classes of membership interest. One is class A1 that are the funds, the opportunity funds. A2, which is cash, but not qualified cash and class B, which is the people that are going to contribute their sweat equity. Mm. And the A2 and the sweat equity people do not get any of the opportunity zone benefits. So if it's 50-50 between A1 and a combination of A2 and B, then at the end of the day for the wow moment, I call it, which is no tax on the gain that occurs during the hold period. So at the end of the day, that will be taxed 50% to the A2 and B, but no tax to the A1. That's clever. That's a clever way of making that different share class distinction there. I think it makes the accounting a lot easier during that. I'm going to steal that line from you, the you wow bet. moment. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I've never heard it referred to as the wow moment, but I'm definitely going to use that going forward. That, uh, that, that big benefit, which is eliminating yeah. capital gains after 10 year holding period. Right. That's great. And whenever I speak in person, I always make the audience say, wow, with me. And <laughs> when this first came out, I was talking to the manager of the CBRE um, real estate office in Portland, and I described the three benefits. And when I described the wow factor, he said, oh, Connie, that's smoke and mirrors. Hmm. And I said, no, it's not. It's really not. Because that last benefit is, is such a compelling factor that even though the steps up in basis have gone away, mm -hmm. Even though you can only defer until 2026, right now, there's a proposal, uh, there's a proposed bill to extend that. The last factor is so compelling that 
even without an extension of the program, I believe we are going to be creating qualified opportunity funds up until December 30th, 2026. Could you not be creating opportunity funds even through 2027 a little bit? It's, I think it's, uh, unless it is extended, I think that that is- But isn't the deadline to invest 180 days after you accrue a gain in 2026, as long as you realize the gain in 2026, you have an additional 180 days beyond that. That kind of takes you into 2027 or, or am yeah, I mistaken there? I think there's no specific legislation that addresses that at hmm. this point, but that may be, that may be doable. Yeah. Okay. That's what I've been telling people. So <laughs> I hope I haven't been wrong. You hope it's great. great. Yeah. Well, okay. What about um, what about that reform legislation that that you just mentioned? You mentioned that the basis step ups have expired, and currently the program is set to sunset at the end of 2026. The OZ reform legislation that you referred to is uh, is recent uh, bipartisan legislation, a bill that was introduced into both the House and the Senate in early April. I've already covered it fairly extensively on this podcast and and on a webinar that I uh, co-hosted with OzWorks group uh, back last month in April. Uh, But Connie, I want to get your take on it. What what, what, what would the bill do exactly? And and what what are your thoughts on, on does the bill go too far? Does it go far enough? Does it not go far enough? Where where do you land? Yeah, Uh, I have been working in the Opportunity Zone space since about February of 2018. It was passed at the end of 2017. At that time, I was just wrapping up a 10 year practice of representing tenant and common owner groups and workouts. And so it was really timely for me. And I started studying it the minute that it came out and have been focused on it ever since. You were an early adopter. So just to paint a picture for people who aren't aware, you were starting to research them before the zones were even designated because the zones weren't designated until July of 2018. And then the funds didn't really start coming out until about that time either. So you you predated all that by several months, which yes. is great. We'll go, go on. I, uh, I did the first and biggest opportunity fund in Oregon. We did a $330 million offering to build a hotel in Salem, Oregon, and a, and a high rise on the east side of the river in downtown Portland. And so from the beginning of me working on the Opportunity Zone legislation and seeing how it was going to play out, I have always said, this should not be a program that sunsets, this should be a program that continues. And so I have always advocated for a rolling program, which would have a requirement that we pay our taxes eight years or 10 years Mm -hmm. after we make our investment rather than on a fixed date. And so, and I've talked about it, um, Jimmy, you know that um, Novogratz and Ozone Expo are the, are the two main conference producers. And for the last many years, I've spoken at each of their two conferences, so four conferences a year on real estate securities and the ozone program. And so I've strongly advocated for that extension. I learned at this last Novogratz conference that from Shea, who was Senator Scott's 
um, aid and really was fundamental in putting together the program, I chatted with him about it and asked why is the new bill proposing an extension of the program from 2026 to 2028 instead of making it instead of making it rolling. And he had some really interesting insights. First of all, think about the unusual situation we're in with this. In 2022, when everything in the world is polarized, having an actual bipartisan bill proposed. And so that's one of the big issues. And the, the elements of the bill, and let's see if I can tell them all off the top of my head. One of them is that it extends the date till the end of 2028. Another is that there are a number of reporting requirements that are added and testing and, and really measuring impact. Another is that funds can invest in funds. So in the current legislation, you cannot have a realist uh, qualified opportunity fund invest in another qualified opportunity fund. In my earlier example, I was talking about where Jimmy and I create an opportunity fund, we would sidecar more or less invest in another fund's qualified opportunity zone business. Right. And what that does, and if we go back to the securities analysis, if you have a big fund like I, like I created for downtown and you had a couple that formed a fund at the end of the year where the two different step up and basis expired, then my fund with my husband and I, or my fund with Jimmy and I could not invest in that big fund, but we would have to put our money directly into the qualified opportunity zone business property. So just thinking about that, no harm, no foul. If somebody wanted to invest in each of that fund's investments, both Grand and Salem, then they could make an investment in each. Now, here's the kicker on that. And that is that the fund is issuing a securities offering, right? They're making, they're bringing in capital gains from people that are going to sit back and wait for Vanessa, who's the name of my client, um, to make them money. But if we have a sidecar, then there is a new issuer, which is the QOZB. And so if I have a fund that is going to invest in her business property, that's a new securities offering. Mm. And so that fund manager has to be willing to document a new securities offering many of whom are not willing to take that step. And so it really limits the amount of investments that husband and wife LLC can make in their fund. Right. You have to, you have to either find your own deal, essentially, right. or you have to find a fund that allows you to sidecar and to come exactly. with your investments straight into the underlying assets of the fund, the QOZB, as it right. were, right? Yeah. And so... Those are some of the primary elements mm -hmm. of the bill. And do I support the bill? I think was one of your questions. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that anything that allows 
more of these investments into disadvantaged areas is a good thing. Another element of the bill is that certain areas, and I'll use an ex as an example, Oregon's downtown Portland and the Pearl District in Oregon are in zones. People have complained about that a lot because they are really not disadvantaged areas in today's economy, or I should have said the economy two years ago. So it was, there, there's been a lot of controversy about it. Now, one of my responses to that is that there's a Ritz-Carlton going in in the Pearl District. Should that be an opportunity fund project? Well, it is. It's in Multnomah County and East County in Gresham is also in Multnomah County. And so the tax base that increases in the Pearl District still benefits Gresham. So I don't think it's an aberration that that's included, but one of the elements of the proposed bill are that we decertify certain areas that either were not or are no longer disadvantaged areas, and we instead identify new areas, which is, you know, which I think is a good and productive change. And when I was first reading the decertification, I got really nervous about it. But then I went on to read some really good, healthy grandfathering provisions saying that if a fund had already been created in one of these areas that's getting decertified, it can remain. If somebody had had already invested money into a fund based on the prior certification, they would be grandfathered in. So I like all of those proposed changes. I am cautious about the reporting because I do not want this to be a program that is ever stalled or eliminated because of the level of oversight and, uh, and political quagmire that it goes into. So, so long as people keep those things reasonable, then I think it could really benefit the program and, and, the, and the communities that need to have these investments. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I've, I've been very supportive of the bill as well, and I hope it gets passed at some point soon. Time will tell when that may happen, but uh, I, I, think, uh, I think it's got a very good chance of, of going through in, in some fashion, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, um, Connie, it was great speaking with you today. Uh, before we sign off, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Dunn Carney? Well, my uh, email is crathbone, R-A-T-H-B-O-N-E, at Dunn, D-U-N-N, Carney, C-A-R-N-E-Y.com. I have a 120-page packet of information that my assistant will email to you. Um, I don't know, Jimmy, if that would go through your company or if people should just ask directly, but anyone can ask for that package by emailing Tom Holmes, which is T-H-O-L-M-E-S, and then the same, the same ending at duncarney.com. I'm happy to share information. I'm always happy to get on the phone and brainstorm on my nickel and not yours. So it's a, you know, it's a great new area of law. A perfect example of the program is that I am working with a client who has owned 1,200 acres in Burns, Oregon for, 
you know, generations. And all of Burns is in an opportunity zone and Burns died 25 years ago when the mill closed. And so we are working on a project to reinvigorate Burns by using a combination of regular development and stimulus funds and opportunity zone funds to remake that community. And that is exactly what the program was set out for. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and with any luck, this this bill gets passed as well and can yeah. uh, increase the amount of capital that flows in for more years, increase the amount of projects that, that get done. Uh, well, just a, a reminder to our listeners and viewers of today's podcast, as always, of course, I will have show notes available for this episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I'll make sure we have links to all of the resources that Connie and I discussed on today's show. I'll be sure to link to Connie's email address and Tom's email address, and we can get that packet on over to you. That packet's great, by the way, Connie, I don't know if you knew this, but I, I, I figured out a way to get it. I think about a year or two ago, and uh, it's very thorough, the amount of uh, information that goes in there. So we greatly appreciate your work. Uh, again, for our listeners and viewers, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Connie, thanks again. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.